Hi, I'm Brian Strauss, co-founder of Demand Collective and host of the Collective Wisdom podcast. Collective Wisdom is a demand generation podcast brought to you by Demand Collective, a hyper-vetted community of demand gen and revenue marketers. Apply to join online at demandcollective.io. Thanks for listening. Awesome, awesome. Welcome to another episode of Collective Wisdom by Demand Collective. Today I'm joined by Talar, CMO at Benexa, an all-in-one marketing automation solution for calls, leads, clicks, emails, SMS, accounting, and more. Talar is also co-founder and co-CEO of The Wonder Agency. She's been in marketing for over eight plus years, working across a variety of verticals, including marketing automation, HubSpot partner agencies, and even video games. Thanks for joining us today, Talar. Thanks for having me. And dang, you like got my bio down. I'm like, I, I need your script to update uh, update my profile. I love it. I'm just trying to be your biggest hype man. That's all. I love it. <laughs> uh, how's your week going? What's the news? What's happening? Oh, well, it's been kind of cloudy in LA. The week is going great. Um, you know, it's been busy, especially, I don't know if, um, you know, uh, all of you are experiencing kind of the crunch of the last few months um, and, and trying to get a bunch of stuff out the door to close out a strong quarter. But that's kind of that's kind of where we're at. Um, but things are well. What about you? Yeah, yeah. Q4, right? That's where that final sprint happens. Um, I'm great. I'm great. Super excited to have you. I was wondering if you could maybe just to start us off with a little bit about your journey as a marketer, how you got to be a CMO at Finexa, I saw you sort of started your journey as a marketing coordinator at Eisenberg. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I had um, a role before Eisenberg that was agency side. Though. So I spent um, most of the early part of my career. Um, well, I'd say early part of my career into like sort of it turned into eight years um, uh, agency side. So um, I... I actually was straight out of college running political campaigns, political grassroots campaigns. So the fun fact was I was a volunteer and then I got out of college, got a job at a nonprofit I had been volunteering for. And the part of it that I really loved was actually community outreach at that time. Um, and this might like date or age, uh, like give up my age a little bit, but Obama was running and we were just seeing like social light up in terms of a really new strategy on how to run presidential elections. And I think a lot of campaigns were thinking about how to use that strategy locally. So I got like, I was a community outreach, like coordinator straight out of college. And they're like, here, like pick up the phones, call people, talk to all these organizations that endorsed this candidate or this project. And so I was like, why wouldn't I just build a Facebook group and start running ads on Facebook? But nobody was really doing that. So I was like taking a beat from uh, the national elections and started sort of learning about it in real time. Um, lo and behold, one of the guys who was kind of, uh, you know, one of the um, members who was also volunteering owned his own marketing agency. They did SEO and PPC. So that's kind of when I went agency side. Um, I started off in local kind of like local sort of 
uh, local marketing, local SEO, local PPC. And so it was a lot of driving foot traffic to, um, you know, uh, different uh, locations and mom and pop shops, and then also uh, companies that had franchise locations. And then um, from there, I wanted to use those skills to work with larger brands. So that's when I joined Eisenberg. And um, my role there was kind of twofold. I was working um, in helping produce videos um, as a part of integrated campaigns for Xbox and Microsoft. That's the first time that I actually started using the Microsoft HoloLens, which was at the time um, a B2B marketing plan on Microsoft's side. So they went out with the HoloLens um, and they went to market with larger institutions claiming productivity and efficiency with mixed reality and using that in your day-to-day -day life. Mm -hmm. So um, worked on a you know some games, console marketing. Um, and then I the next agency I went to, I was like, well, I want to now see a very different company size. So I went to uh, an agency that was one of HubSpot's largest partner agencies. And, um, and it was B2B enterprise SaaS. And so I spent a lot of my uh, career there. I loved it. Um, uh, and then I was like, I'm ready to go in-house now. <laughs> I, I'm ready to commit. Yeah. Um, I had commitment issues and I was like, I'm ready. So um, I, I joined like two Web3 startups. I was their head of marketing. And, um, and then, you know, Web3 was super volatile last year. And, yeah. um, and I decided to start my own consulting business. Uh, um, and, um, and then I ended up at Finexa as CMO, um, you know, and I, and I was, you know, grateful to still be sort of consulting with startups that, um, that I would meet along the way that were either friends or people I met through the course of my career. Yeah, yeah, that's an amazingly varied career. Uh, yeah, it's been a windy road. It's like some people just go out, grow up in brand marketing or, you know, in certain functional domains. But I kind of, I like the breadth. I like keeping it interesting. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like, you know, you mentioned kind of jumping in between like B2B enterprise, starting off in like... Uh, Microsoft and Xbox and things like that. Like, how does that inform your current strategies? Like, I feel like that's a lot of experience that people in your position don't often have. Yeah, I've I've toggled in between consumer marketing and B two B. So at the Web three um, startups, there were both components. It was we were building creator platforms and also platforms for uh, larger companies like Paramount. Um, Paramount and Hello Kitty Sanrio were dropping their own NFTs on our platform. But mm. we then, then I had to manage the consumer marketing side, which is like, how do I get actually people to believe that having um, this digital collectible is going to give them access or entry into more value from this brand? And so um, I found that throughout the course of my career, I've toggled in between consumer and B2B marketing. And I think partly that's become a little bit of a, a value add in the sense that um, when I think about B2B marketing, I think about the consumer context. And I also think about how um, the, you know, a B2B company impacts the end user, right? Yeah. Um, it's not always the case where a B2B company impacts an end user, but chances are you do with your B2B companies that are working with you. So I think that that changes the way that you tell stories and it changes the way that you think about what you should be saying as a, as a company. And we're in that transitional stage right now at Finexa where we're very features driven. 
Um, we, you know, would talk very much about our capabilities, but we didn't talk very much about our end users and what they're like and what is part of their culture. Like, what, who is who is the archetype here that loves working with us? And then, what do the end users that that of their companies feel when they work with them. And that creates a feedback loop that is still very like you're touching consumers, the people yeah. you're selling to our consumers. So um, I think that's kind of uh, left in, left uh, a lot of impact. Yeah, yeah. And I'm sure that's those sorts of conversations can be really difficult, both on the team level and on the executive level, because there's so much change that comes with that, right? On yeah. a tactical and strategic level. What yeah. sort of advice would you have for someone? You know, I've talked to a lot of marketers who are entering these new leadership roles, like head of marketing, especially. How yeah. do you find a balance between speaking the language of executives and the board versus di uh, taking all of that and distilling it into digestible terms for your team? That is a wonderful question. And it's a wonderful question because I think questions that are hard for me to give straight a straight answer to it usually means that I'm still working on it and mm -hmm. I'm still and I'm still formulating what I think is the best path for me I think we're all really different in how we navigate um, our, our even our personality types and what our strengths are and so I think you firstly in order to create change at an executive level um, and on a and, and on a strategic level, and then to then turn that into an action plan that gets executed differently from what had happened before, right? You're gonna re you have maybe the same team members, maybe some new team members, right? And you're basically the boat was going this way, and you're saying no, I'm coming in, and this is the direction, right? That yeah. leaves um, an impact on the executive team. It also changes the behaviors of the team. Maybe they need to learn new skills. Maybe they've changed roles and you've restructured, which is something we did at Finexo when I joined. Mm -hmm. And so I think there is three things that um, you need to keep in mind. The first thing, and I was reminded of this this week, was that your A team is the leadership team. I'm a first time CMO, which means that I'm a very, I have functional core competencies. I'm really great at demand gen. I've had a, a lot of experience in brand marketing. Um, I, uh, you know, uh, and in demand gen, I kind of bucket in paid media and performance marketing as a key component. And I have a lot of experience in content marketing, but, so, but those are core competencies, things that I can do, right? If somebody told me, go run these campaigns, go build a video campaign, I would know how to do that functionally. What changes is on the first thing is that your A team is the executive team. Their buy-in, your relationships with them impact what you are enabled and empowered to do. And then you will have a team that's understanding you, like why you set the goals the way you do, why you're turning the ship. And um, and keeping that line of communication open, make sure that you and sales are going to market together, you and CS are expanding together. And I've worked um, really hard in trying to figure out how to do that with the other personalities and capabilities at the table. The second thing is, when on the team level, when you're changing the ship, you now have the you have some semblance of buy-in and cooperation and um, and agreement and alignment on the executive team. The next thing is is you've got your team right, and you have to spot. I've now audited right and audited in the sense what is everybody working on.
Mm-hmm. What, are, how are our channels performing? How does that inform our revenue data? What, where are the channels that are driving revenue? Are we even, have we even tested in certain channels and um, that, that uh, we need to be exploring based on our ICP? So when I came in, I audited, I built out new ICPs that were not different. They just, we just built them out, right? We institutionalized them. And then we, uh, and then we said, now what is our strategy? So we built that strategy. Uh, I built that strategy. Worked with our executive team to fine tune it. Went back to my own team and said, here's how we need to restructure. Here's how what we need to focus on. But the trust building piece there was really important because somebody getting new skill sets or doing something differently from what they did before. Um, that requires them trusting that you're going to support them, guide them, and sometimes even get on that field and show them how it's done, bring in mentors to help them get to that next level, get, give them courses, guidance, all the things that they need to feel empowered, that they can change the strategy with you, and that they're a part of that team, that you're not some somebody walking in and changing, changing the playbook. Yeah. Um, and I think that creates trust. And... Um, and I think sort of those are the things that uh, that I tried focusing on, and I'm still working on it. You know, I'm still working on each of those areas every single day to make sure that there is continuous alignment on both sides. Yeah, yeah. How do you manage like when you have conflicts between like departments and like, you know, say one of the biggest misses that I see with a lot of teams is sales creates their goals in a silo, marketing creates theirs in a silo, and you look at like the down funnel metrics and the goals don't support each other being attainable right and that's how you end up seeing like what 60 percent of sellers aren't going to hit quota this year Mm -hmm. yeah i i'd say that um i walked into sales and marketing not really talking very much um in the sense that like how are we going to market together there might be talking right around the water cooler uh metaphorically but right like there wasn't a how are we going to market together and Mm -hmm. um and then also that conversation wasn't happening as actively with product and CS, right? So, um, and it's it wasn't anyone's own fault. It's it's more of like you just get used to working in a silo. You want to get your stuff done, and right. you want to do it the best that you can. And sometimes you forget, like, oh, if I just connect this dot regularly enough, I'm going to do this better. So. One of the first things I did was making sure that the go-to market with sales was aligned. We were, we didn't go the full ABM route, but mm-hmm. we aligned our lists. Our lists were different, if you can imagine. Um, they were not, we were not talking to the same prospects. We were running primarily search ads and church campaigns, which is still, you know, revenue generating channel for us, though a little bit expensive as many of you might find. Um, but uh, <laughs> we basically aligned our, lists and our target audiences we had our icps and then we said let's like do these you know with our outbound sales motion let's do these let's do the scripting here together let's break down these lists and then let's talk about how we're doing attribution let's talk about what it looks like when you align your lists and there's marketing influence revenue and then sales outbound revenue how do we actually track that to make sure sales feels incentivized marketing feels heard and let's treat this as a joint revenue team right as much as we can and um, I, I wouldn't say that we're 100% there, but I, I would say that at the very least, we're coordinated on our event strategy. We're coordinated on 
the lists and the types of, of clients that are most valuable to us and have a higher lifetime value. We understand and have the same definitions on what those things are. And then the other thing is marketing uh, being judged by opportunities and as, as our key KPI um, yeah. and, um, and adjusting from, we still report on uh, high intent leads and low intent leads, but we've broken them out in two categories. So we have high intent hand reader, uh, hand raisers, um, and those who are more sales ready based on the forms that they fill out. And then the leads that are coming in from offers or content or different pathways that demonstrate low intent. And we figured out how to automate, like giving them more content that they like. So the sales team can focus on the high intent um, mm -hmm. hand raisers. And then we are tracking the volume on what turns into an opportunity, what channels are working for us, what influenced um, those steps and being diligent in reviewing that with sales on a monthly basis. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a great call out dividing by intent. I see a lot of teams who are sort of working from a blended CAC perspective. And so like that customer acquisition cost is going to look really different when you have them together versus looking at them individually. Yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. And I think it's like, um, we look at channel CAC, but it's like, even channel CAC is like hard. Right. Um, so uh, so uh, you kind of have to look at it uh, a little bit in in conjunction with one another. It's like, what campaigns am I running right now? Um, what is my paid campaign CAC based on each campaign and each channel I'm working on? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, when I look three months down the line, what's my what's like, how, how am I recouping those costs? And is that client expanding? And then that feedback loop is really important from CS to help define CS and sales who's typically on top of their accounts as well and keeping an eye on them through the, uh, through their in, um, a sort of account management experience with us. So I think, I think, yeah, you can't really look at that blended cap cap for all MQLs that enter your system, you kind of have to look at it by channel, by campaign, and then by high and low intent, and mm -hmm. and, uh, and then sort of justify your costs um, that way. Yeah, yeah, because that's, I think that's, that's important for a few reasons. In particular, you know, when you're talking to a CFO, they always want to see, you know, what channels are cost centers, what's direct ROI, right? Right. And there's that you know, age old sort of fight where you have to explain to people that the buying journey is very rarely linear, right? Are we going to talk about attribution, Brian? Oh, we're about we're... to talk about attribution. I, I, what we're about to talk about is how to tell a CFO, hey, man, when's the last time you bought a $20,000 product off of a single get a demo ad on LinkedIn, yeah. right? Making that fight. So when you advocate for these channels, how do you really spin that narrative that doing something like brand creation and brand familiarity ads on LinkedIn isn't just a cost center, that it lifts up your other channels. Okay. So it's still, again, we're still working on it. Um, yeah. But there is two things, um, two things I think in the arsenal that are starting to happen. So when basically how we are, we're like transitioning away from from it now, but how this has been done so far, um, and we're moving slowly away from it, but we just, we're hiring a demand gen manager right now to help us 
actually get this reporting set up and integrated. So if any of you know anyone, please let us know. It, like shameless plug. Um, we'll share it with the community. <laughs> but um, essentially we were doing um, original source contact properties in HubSpot. And then we were doing last click attribution on all of the leads that entered the system, right? Mm -hmm. So the data that we have from the last two years was based on those two components and how they impacted attribution. So kind of problematic, right? How we're changing this is to look at, to essentially update our HubSpot contact records to identify last click touch points for each stage in the buyer's journey and the conversion rate across those individual stages. Yeah. And then to basically, um, to, at, uh, to at that point also, so that's one thing. So you can actually see when an MQL turns into an SQL, the percentage of, uh, the percentage of activities or touch points that resulted in that stage change was X, right? Mm -hmm. So you're basically doing by stage attribution um, and five stage um, conversion rate reporting. And you can set that up in HubSpot. Um, and if you don't use HubSpot, you can also do it in Excel by pulling your, uh, your, um, your data. The second thing that um, we have already implemented is, um, is uh, you know, self-identified reporting where, you know, um, on all of our forms, it's how did you hear about us and allowing them to tell us, right? And so this has been socialized a lot on LinkedIn lately as, um, as something that should be done. Uh, and, and, I, and I agree because it's what does someone remember um, from our interactions? And then the memorable things become a second data point outside of the stage change data that you're yeah. capturing. Um, and then, the, and then how, how that changes the conversation with finance is um, then you take that report and you say, when we're generating MQLs, right? I don't want to talk about whether MQLs are dead or whatever. I, I we still use them, but we they're they're leads, right? They're leads that are generally in the firmographic. They've like filled out a form at some point, but they have no not really expressed sales interest. That's how we define them. So uh, for an MQL, it's basically telling finance like when we go from an MQL to an SQL, these are the channels that work. When we go from SQL to opportunity, these are the these are the channels that really work. And then when we get to close one, these are the stages where we're lagging, where sales is lagging, where we need more support. And then these are the things that people say they remember about us in terms of channel activation. The other thing you can layer on here, which we're working on, is lift reporting. How likely is a deal going to close from Google Ads than they will um, from LinkedIn Ads, right? Is there a direct correlation between lift and likelihood to close. Um, so we're actually using uh, um, hockey stack to see these lift reports so that mm -hmm. we can better um, understand like the influenced uh, revenue in, in greater depth um, and get that like here is, here is the lift. If it's 50, 60% from LinkedIn and then I'm looking at 10% from Google ads, then we're not, as, we're not closing those, those deals um, in the same capacity. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh that's amazing. That's I don't hear a lot of people going that granular, which is really exciting because I think it's 
a lot of the discussion around it can be really reductive, but I, I don't want to get too deep into attribution because that's a discussion we've heard a million times. Um, but I did appreciate how hyped up you got about it. Um, what do you feel like is a, a big, like what's your, what's your big hot take? You know, something that you feel you hear a lot of and you're kind of like, no, not for you. Um, I don't know. Okay, so I don't know whether this is a hot take and it maybe it's just more of a like, roll my eyes thing, um, but not in like a bad way. It's just, I think um, marketers have the tendency to define and redefine, right? Like category creation is such a big uh, word that we consistently use, right? And and it's not that I don't believe that you can create a category. I I actually believe that that's one of the ways to create dominance in a market, especially as um, an early entrance. It's create the category and define it. Um, It's what HubSpot did with inbound marketing. You're kind of seeing audience plus do it with owned media right now in B2B. And I I think they're very smart to move in that direction based on the platform they've built. Um, And and so I I don't, um, you know, uh, and so you saw Drift do this with conversational marketing, right? Which wasn't really a category. So I don't disagree with the premise that creating a category and defining that category is important. What I what I tend to shy away from is the need to redefine something that doesn't need to be renamed. I think that um, you need to look at your business and you need to like there's going to be a lot of noise on, you know, LinkedIn and, um, and on a bunch of social channels around, let's call this X now, right? Or um, MQL shouldn't be MQLs, they should be like insert another acronym that somebody has thought up, right? Because it defines it better. And, and that's na- our natural tendency as humans to say, as humans, and especially marketers to say, once this name is changed, it means something else. And so now you've redefined it and it and it matters in a new context. And I think that's all good and fine, but I don't think it should be where our sites are set. I think when we get too caught up in our feeds and we get too caught up on everybody else's playbook on what's working and how they've renamed something, and now we all need to call it that, we forget that we're not running the playbook that's good for our business. And you need to keep an eye on the ball and you need to keep coming back to is like, I'm going to call my MQLs MQLs, right? But am I helping define what purpose they play in our organization? Am I acting as a conduit to constant learning and education on how marketing is changing? I don't need to change my vernacular to do that. And so that's kind of one of my, you know, like, like, things i guess (laughs) that's your soapbox yeah that's my um i think marketing as a whole i agree is is definitely in need of standardization of terminology right like we have so much of the same terms flying around meaning something entirely different at different companies yeah um and i think there's if it's gonna help to sorry to cut you off align with CS and use the same word you've always been using, but teach them how you define it a little bit differently. That's totally fine. Use yeah. the same word if it's going to create alignment in the org. Just know and educate about how you might think of that thing differently than the predecessor or how it was done before. Yeah, yeah. So you we, you touched on on category creation in that. And 
recently you, I think it was through Finexa, you had a webinar where you talked a little bit about leveraging review sites, right? Like G2, for wow. example, and how to really create a strategy centered on that category, right? Maybe could you maybe could you tell me a little bit about how someone who, you know, for example, something I ran previously was, hey, let's leverage existing category traffic by hopping on the coattails of these larger brands in a category, right? How would you give someone a uh, sort of tactical advice for how to implement a plan that takes advantage of that? Yeah. So the the one uh, terminology that we've probably seen in our feeds is like community go to market. Probably a lot of us are following along on how to do creator, um, you know, com creator connection building in B2B. And I actually really, I think the G2 conversation is actually a part of that conversation because it has to do with share of voice. And it, I think that um, whether it's review sites or whether it's um, user generated content, whether it's your partners amplifying um, your content and contributing to it or your customers doing that, I think all of those things kind of fall into what I'd call a, um, a heavy focus on community. Um, and so uh, that G2 conversation, um, I think is, is once it, I think it's released next week, but I'm excited by it because I think, you know, we've all used review sites for a while. And I don't think that we, uh, you know, you might have a listing on G2, you know that you're kind of getting in market buyers if you're a software company or whatever else, you know that they might be searching and you're getting that not only the data from them on the um, on that audience, but what you're also doing is like, you're making sure your customers are talking about you on those platforms. But sometimes we forget that those reviews are not in a silo. It's not like just G2 that they're useful for, that yeah. they're useful um, on the channels that you manage on social. And it's not just throwing up that quote on social. It's thinking about how can I activate with this customer in a way that tells more customers like them that their problems are things I understand. And that can't be really done just through a case study video or a review. Um, and I think the B2B marketing community is shifting um, to doing to to consumer marketing in this direction it's like how do i turn my customers into loyalists and content creators how do i do that with my executive team how do i do that with my partners and then how do i do that with um with the prospects that i want to bring into into our fold and into our community mm -hmm. we um at finexa we not only use review sites but we are building out our own media content pipeline the latter half of this year. And we are leaning into the culture of our ICP, which are affiliate marketers. Yeah. And you see in the YouTube videos, right? There's a certain culture around affiliate marketing and how to generate revenue and live your best life. And we are going hard and taking somewhat of a risk and leaning in that direction and embracing it. And mm -hmm. then I think, and then, uh, and then using our partners as the thought leaders to kind of fuel our content engine, bring them in as your influencers. Don't forget that your loyalists are your best advocates and you really need to think about them as like evangelists, right? And you yeah. need to give them the tools to do that properly. Really, really great answer, Pilar. I uh, really appreciate that. Um, I guess just one final question before we dig into uh, giving other people a shot at questions. Um, who is the best demand marketer you've ever worked with and why? Oh my gosh, that's such a hard question. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. 
This is a hard question. You know, I think a lot of people, um, I think a lot of people have seen sort of, uh, you know, Chris Walker's content over the last few years. Um, and, I, and I think like, I think there's something to be said about um, him being able to surface certain things that were uh, real concerns in B2B marketing and helping talk through them. Um, I, I wouldn't say that I've worked with his team. I haven't, you know, but I feel like there is something to be said for the influence that his content has had on me um, and, and just my thinking overall, right? I haven't had to work with them directly to take value from the content or the podcasts or the information. And it's probably a generic answer since most of us already kind of know him, but I think that, um, or, or like have seen his content, though I think uh, it's impacted my thinking over the last few years. Um, so, uh, but I also, I think, follow a lot of consumer marketers that um, that are um, that still impact my uh, my thinking. Um, one of my favorite um, CMOs, I met him on LinkedIn when I was, you know, uh, still at a manager level, and he was more than willing to hop on a call with me and connect with me. And, um, and uh, till this day, he's probably one of those people that's also toggled between consumer marketing and B2B. And everywhere I've seen him go, I've seen him just crush it and not in demand gen, just in building a renewed sense of purpose for the brand. And so I don't think that you need to have a demand gen sort of person to influence you. I, I kind of, it's been, it's ranged where I kind of see great, brands being built. And I try to bring that into the demand gen function as much as I can. Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're, we're the heart and soul of the marketing team, you know? <laughs> we're, the, we're the fuel for the fire. We're the fuel, we're the fuel exactly. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, thank you, Talar. This has been great. Um, does anyone here have any questions they want to share? Feel free to drop, drop them in the chat or to just turn on your camera and ask. Yeah, I actually have a question. Hi, I'm Kelsey. Um, so I something I've been kind of running into is feeling like I've kind of just been bucketed into demand gen and haven't really gotten much exposure in like brand or product marketing. And I've always been in B2B and never had also exposure to B2C. So what would you say like now, especially going up to the CMO, the CMO level where you're kind of expected to be the expert across like how would you say that you balance that one and maybe areas that you don't feel as like expert level on um but then also how would you suggest like i am currently open for opportunities of course i'm looking at, at demand gen um opportunities but i'm afraid that that just kind of continues to bucket me and doesn't give me that exposure elsewhere yeah, it's a really good point. I think I think I'd say that I I'd spent most of my time agency side and in demand gen. That five year stretch I had with the large HubSpot agency was focused on building out the demand gen function and working with clients directly. And I'd say like I would consider that my core competency. So we have something we have something that's similar. Yeah. Um, I, I would say um, there might be things that you can look for in your next role that might expose you to other components. So for example, um, one of the companies that I got connected, uh, that, I, that I met 
through uh, Audience Plus, who I mentioned before, they um, a lot of uh, the demand gen marketer terminology, they've trained to be audience marketers. And mm. audience marketers are content focused as well as brand focused, but they have demand gen skill sets. And okay. so I think something that you might think about is, can I find a role? Uh, the, the positive thing is most demand gen managers span more gamuts than you might imagine because right. we touch so much so we do content marketing we right. and i say we because like i'm a part i'm part of this you know um we do content marketing we do paid media we do touch all these components right. and so you are more varied in your skill set than you might think you are and it yeah. might just and so i kind of say look for something that is adjacent but that allows you to um to sort of take on a lateral title that still still allows you to lean into your core competencies, but maybe introduces a new area and need that you could grow in. And mm -hmm. most, um, I think most employers uh, would find that that's something that they'd be excited about. You can grow in a certain category, but also bring the value as a demand marketer. Mm -hmm. The second thing that I'd say is working agency side was probably one of the best things I did to get varied experience. Mm -hmm. You might consider looking at an agency in your network role so that you can get exposed to different kinds of clients and different um, in different contexts that mm -hmm. will give you an on-ramp to I think like diversification yeah. um, not just in your role but in the types of companies you've worked with and that might allow you to see like even if you have one client that's a little bit more consumer focused because the agency might be a little more varied in their clientele um, find a place that might give you enough options on client types right. where you could uh, get more exposure and then then go back to client side and say you know i actually really learned loved this industry right. and this particular competency let me let me do that in-house and it might open and broaden yeah awesome thank you yeah i hope that was helpful super helpful another question uh if you are working with ABM and sales are trying to go whale hunting and saying, okay, we want like senior director, VP, CEO of large companies, but there are just so many of them. How do you balance sales desire for whale hunting from another side, uh, getting to manager level, getting to other people in the organization. Would you say that when you say whale hunting, does that also change the company size? Or is it, are you referring to it as they are going more senior and they're not thinking about the buying committee? That's what you're, okay. If sales are going more senior and do not consider the rest of the titles uh, interesting, how do you structure the marketing programs, not only to find the list for sales they can work on, uh, but also do something else, or maybe you don't. Yeah, so I think, um, I don't know how well-defined your ICPs are, but when I go through that exercise, what I define is who is the decision maker, and then, I def and then defining who are the people that influence that decision maker. So I think that first, um, documenting that and socializing that so you have a shared understanding of who those people and players are 
because the chance what usually happens is sales just wants to close right they want to get that they want to have the highest likelihood of bringing in a deal that's going to stay with the company they have a very hard job to make that happen so where i kind of like to step in is to say let's have a shared definition of all the other players here let's reset and say who influences this decision let's document it to together because chances are they're also in conversations where this decision maker is bringing in three other people into the next demo and they're all talking about what they need and you've got those recordings right you can watch those sales calls so what are those other people asking how does that impact what marketing target what marketing how marketing influences those people that are coming into the room maybe at a later stage or in an earlier stage so i'd say Use those recordings, use those sales calls to define who the influencers are in the decision, document it, review it with sales, make sure they are brainstorming it with you. They agree on it. They say, yeah, you know, they do bring the IT guy in. They do bring, you know, just make sure that that shared pool of meaning is there. And then marketing needs to segment that messaging. It's what is the sales collateral that we can help with for this audience versus this versus this. And then sales gonna gonna have the bank of stuff to use and go out into the world with. It could very well be that the sales deck they have is just for that VP. They only feel confident talking to that guy because they don't have enough enough guidance on how to talk to all the other people because it's just not documented right or maybe not actioned in a way that they feel can help them close the deal. At the end of the day, they need to see value in going after the other, the other um, ICPs and marketing can help them do that. I Thank hope you. that was helpful. Yeah. I think we've got just uh, another minute or two left. Eric, did you have a final question you wanted to ask? Yeah, first of all, Talar, this has been amazing. I've been, uh, thank you for doing this and so thank many you. golden nuggets. I really resonate with the marketers just love to define and redefine <laughs> stuff. Yeah. So I've awful. been holding off on a social media post about yeah. that only because I feel like I, I I feel like it's a it's a thing, you know? Uh but yeah. Yeah, I mean I me. we had a conversation where it was so we were like MQLs are dead, MQLs aren't dead, and then someone's like MQLs are just high intent leads. And then it boiled down to like, what do we define MQLs as? And everyone was saying the same thing, just with different definitions. So it's yeah. interesting. Um, I just had a quick question that I thought might be interesting. We, we got a couple of members in Demand Collective um, who are in the job search. You're hiring for a demand gen manager. If you were to, if you were to put yourself in, in that person's shoes, someone in the job search, or maybe even applying to the specific role, like any mistakes that you want to make sure to avoid in that process and anything, uh, you know, unique ways that you would approach it. Yeah. Uh, you mean um, mistakes through the application and interview process? Yeah. As a, as a demand gen person looking for a job, what mistakes to avoid and, and maybe what tactics to focus on to stand yeah. out in the process? That's a great question. Um, it's interesting because uh, I think I think it's been really hard to find a really great demand gen manager, which is really interesting. It's been really hard um, to find one uh, for us. Like we're LA based, so we like that's important to us. And it's and it's been like kind of a, a little bit of a hard search. And I think part of that is because so the things to sort of avoid or keep a lookout for is, you know, I've talked to a lot of candidates who like, which is, this is a very basic, like, inter, like interview 
thing, but it's like that, like, didn't really do their research before they got into the interview process. So it was like, we were just one of a bunch of other companies that they were talking to, which is totally fine in the sense that like, when you're in that process, you really want to find what's right for you. And sometimes you don't have the time to do that deep dive or that whatever, you know, but it's interesting, because I think something that would stand out is if I'm a demand gen manager, and I'm interviewing, you know, and in the past, I've done this, I've logged into similar web, gotten a free account, did an audit of the digital data that was there, figured out who the two competitors were for that client. And I picked out three observations I could use in that interview so that it felt personalized and real. And they felt like, whoa, like you knew that about our data or you knew something about me that wasn't just publicly available. And I think that that can go a long way. Just a quick swipe of understanding like, hey, like their SEO traffic dropped in January. Like it might have nothing to do with demand gen, but it's a, it's a nugget and it's a ticket into a broader conversation around what that demand gen director or VP or CMO that's hiring, like what their problems are, right? It gives you a sense of what they are struggling with. Um, uh, I think that that's huge or even just an industry take, like an opinion on the industry that is thoughtful. Um, I think uh, those are the, I, I think that might be like the, the main thing to stand out. I think it's also for a demand gen manager when I'm reviewing the resume, like I think we are more prone to put in the tasks we are responsible for. I'm also a big, like that is, I'm task oriented and I can tend to be execution focused. A lot of demand gen managers I talk to are similar. You've got a lot of things to do. I would say put the needle moving numbers, make sure that they're there. Um, so if you are responsible for running a demand gen program with, you know, uh, or, and your paid media budget was $10,000 a month and you were able to create efficiencies, like put it down, right? Like it doesn't matter if it was a $5,000 budget or a $10,000 budget because that startup or company on the other end might be looking for that small budget, not the large one. So be honest about your experience, but make it quantifiable in terms of value because I want to see that you know the impact of the numbers. Like even if you're more junior in your role or whatever else, like just an understanding of like how you were able to create impact um, uh, from a quantifiable perspective can go a long way. And I don't see enough resumes that do that. Amazing. I love it. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how our whole job as demand marketers is to think by in a buyer-centric fashion about yeah. what they're looking for and then present compelling offers. But then when it's time for us to do that, in like tailoring our resume or in the interview process, it's like, oh, it didn't work. Like my brain stopped well, working. I know. Well, it's like that. With, it's like that with my personal brand. Like I, my CEO, you know, and I have had so many conversations about like build your personal brand, like be out there, you know. And I'm just like, I do this for other companies. Like, how should I do this for myself? You know, it's 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 a very different um beast when when you're representing you than when you're you know trying to create value for um you know, an external, you, you can have that perspective when it's not for you. That was a really great breakdown. Um, I think we're a little bit over time. So I think uh, this is a good place to cut it. But um, thanks for everyone watching for joining us for another episode of Collective Wisdom with the Man Collective. And thank you to Lar for being our exceptional guest today. Thank really you. Great. <laughs> 
yeah, I really look forward to seeing the work you continue to do with Finexa and to seeing you uh, continue to spit all the fire you spit on LinkedIn. <laughs> um, <laughs> and for those who listen or watch this, if you're a demand marketer looking for a tight-knit community of demand gen experts, be sure to apply to our community, Demand Collective at demandcollective.io. Thank you, everyone, and have a great weekend. Thanks again, Talar. Bye.